Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalyagin. We're here for a great episode this week, our third episode. Dimitri, how are you? I'm doing all right, Conrad. It's been a very eventful week. Uh, just, it's hard to keep up with the news. So much things have been going on. And of course, we're talking about uh, politics and world events and uh, things are really getting shaken up. There are some massive headlines, at least on, on the Twitter space and in mainstream media. And just the kind of staying on top of things has really been a, really been a challenge this week. I'll tell you that much. No, I agree. It's been like, you know, of course it's beneficial to us. There's so much content, but at the same time, sometimes people like me and Dimitri feel like we're missing content just because so many things get lost in the craziness. But I want to thank everybody. So much support throughout this week's as more episodes come. Uh, we reached over 500 subscribers on our YouTube channel. So expect in the next week, the YouTube community function to be up. So we'll be posting all our articles will be on the YouTube channel as well. We got some great responses on the Substack, so thank you so much for that. But with that being said, a bit unfortunate, I remember right as we wrapped up recording episode two last week, I think both of us checked Telegram, and what happened? The Crimean Bridge got mm -hmm. blown up, and we had just finished recording. Fantastic episode, of course, watch it if you haven't, but we, we were a bit disappointed that we missed the big news of that week right as we stopped recording. Dimitri, what, what, are, your, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, it was, it was a little bit unfortunate, but I, I think just the build-up in episode two when we discussed the, uh, the fact that you know, things were escalating, but Russia wasn't actually doing too badly. And uh, the, in fact, we were kind of going against the grain. At that point, the conflict kind of reached a certain stalemate after the referendum. You know, people weren't sure how things were exactly going to escalate. And seemingly, almost in that same hour after the recording, the bridge connecting Ru Russia and uh, Crimea, the Kerch Bridge, was blown up for, you know, by Ukrainian special forces through a terrorist act, right? And at the time, of course, nobody really knew if it was a terrorist act or a missile hit it, but we definitely knew an escalation had occurred, and it was absolutely insane. Of course, the, the news media was uh, reporting that you know this, would, this was an accident, maybe the Russians caused a false flag, there was all kinds of fake news and misinformation. Of course, now, maybe you know, five, six days later, it's, it's come out already that, yes, in fact, Ukrainian special forces were behind this terror act, and uh, I guess we'll discuss what happened after that. Um, uh, that Sunday and Monday, of course, after the explosion, it was uh, it, things really did escalate after that episode. I'll tell you, I'll tell you that much, Conrad. No, it really did. Many people are saying we've kind of entered phase two, as it were, from of you know we can discuss whether this is going to be upgraded to a counterterrorism operation from a special military operation. But generally speaking, it's pretty obvious we've entered phase two of the Russia-Ukraine war. And of course, one of the big things to that was the, you know, assignment of General Surovikin as the head of the, of the joint, you know, the joint force that's in Ukraine. And uh, I think in general, we're starting to see, there's been all sorts of other escalations around the world regarding energy, which we talked a lot about last week regarding Belarus, which we're going to get into. But in many ways, uh, you hear a lot of uh, people in the Russian military blog space, the Russian nationalist perspective, are, are a lot happier than they were a few weeks ago when we were even recording our episode. You know, those were some of the people that might have been coming after us for our, our, our more white-pilled take, because you have people talking about how some of these generals are traitors and Putin's a traitor for not, you know, being a maximalist. And I discussed some of the Putin stuff in an interview I had the pleasure of doing with Hervoye Morik from uh, Geopolitics and Empire on his mm -hmm. TNT radio show. And we're going to get a little bit into the Putin thing. But yeah, phase two really, uh, phase two really was, really showed up. So uh, 
I want to get Dimitri's perspective on uh, on Surovikin and uh, some of the recent strategic and the cultural impl- and kind of the uh, the implications in Russia of what's really going on. Yeah, I think Surovikin's appointment is uh, definitely the beginning of something new, like a new chapter, essentially. And uh, of course, it could be uh, it could present many opportunities, not just to the Russian leadership, but also to the Russian public, how they perceive the special military operation. As you can see, for the first time in the entire conflict, we get a new face, at least to not just um, put the responsibility on, but also to uh, the, the personification of the special military operation thus far has been steadily only placed on Putin and his Minister of Defense, Shoigu. Notice that all the other generals participating, besides perhaps Gerasimov, weren't really given much attention. In fact, we it's almost like there was a specter of, well, the Russians are actually acting in Ukraine, but who exactly is leading them? Is it Putin directly taking the reins, such as like like Nicholas II, the Emperor of Russia, did in world in the First World War, in the second half, or you know who's exactly in charge here? It wasn't really sure, and in fact, Shoigu actually never reported exactly who was leading the forces until uh, exactly five or six days ago. It was officially announced on Russian media through Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, that uh, Sergei Surovikin would take over the reins of the entire leadership of the special military operation, which means Air Force, Navy and the Ground Army. This is a incredibly significant position of power to be in for Surovikin. And frankly, he's, uh, besides the Minister of Defense, he is technically maybe the third most powerful man in Russia at the moment, just by the uh, the reins of power he holds, the military capacity on, under his command. And what a way to enter the um, the world stage, at least to appear in the news for the first time, because I don't think anyone, at least in the English-speaking media, or even the Russian-speaking media, were really aware of this particular character this uh, um persona until uh until of course the the bombing after the carriage bridge explosion the uh, the bombardment of ukrainian uh, strategic targets um absolutely uh incredible and uh, of course um there was there were innocent civilians killed in those explosions as we as reports have come out but the numbers were definitely lower than what was perhaps uh, at first reported by mass um mainstream media sources we heard initially it was calls that hundreds of hundreds of civilians were being killed by the explosions turns out it was maybe in the 20 to 30 percent mark so in fact uh, losses were a lot less and mind you the um the first wave of missile hits strikes actually stopped after only about 24 hour time time period so instead of actually uh it was a very balanced response i'd say from surovikin and just a, a Kind of an entree to what might might occur if Ukraine continues to follow through with its uh, terrorist acts, such as you know the assassination of Daria Dugin or the explosion of the Kerch Bridge. But I think um, I was going to mention just the details of the Kerch Bridge explosion because now and essentially this is unraveling before us on a day-to-day basis. We see the Kerch Bridge explosion, as you probably are aware, it was caused by a truck bomb. So. Explosives were stacked in a truck. I think they claim it was several tons, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it was probably less than a ton because the explosion wasn't that large. And in fact, the bridge is being restored as we speak. Um, the explosives were purchased by Ukrainian special forces, probably the SBU, which is equivalent to the Ukrainian KGB. Then they, they purchased the explosives and Bulgaria transported them to Turkey. Somehow they went through Turkish customs. Through Turkey, they left to Armenia. And through Armenia traveled north up into Russia. And now the controversial part of this is, right, the fact that Armenia and Azerbaijan are currently in uh, in a certain heated situation. There is a 
there is um, a threat of ongoing war in between those two countries, and somehow these explosives made it through Armenian customs, which Armenia declared a day ago that they will be investigating this at the highest level. So the Armenian Attorney General and the main prosecutors of, Ar of the Armenian government are looking into exactly how these explosives made it through their country, right? So, had, so Armenia is definitely, uh, it's questionable as to how exactly they made it through there, but um, the driver of the truck who drove over the bridge and died in the explosion had no idea what ex what deadly cargo he was carrying here, and he was a simple Azerbaijani contractor, so a Muslim man. Um, and of course, as you can understand, that juxtaposition of Armenians or you know Ukrainian special forces um, hiring Armenian terrorists to plant an Azerbaijani Muslim behind the behind the and in the driver's seat and sending him to Russia to perform a terrorist act. This very gets really loaded and convoluted, and the implications of this, of course, the um, are really drastic for the region. I think it's the fact that Russia has kind of kept everybody at peace, despite, you know, has kept the situation under control is, uh, I think, quite amazing. And probably kudos to Russia for not escalating this into some sort of ethnic or uh, ethno-religious conflict internally, at least. No, I, I agree. And this, with the complexity of the situation in the Caucasus around the Black Sea, it's, it's, it's just crazy how so much uh, stuff is still, how much free movement there still seems to be, despite, you know, the amount of the amount of ethno-religious conflicts going on there. Mm. Regarding Sotovikin, I think, you know, General Armageddon, as all the, you know, headlines read, uh, there's been a bit of fear-mongering and, uh, you know, hate-mongering. You know, he's been, obviously, to anyone with a Ukraine flag in their bio, he's been he's been public enemy number one now for years, even though they just learned about his existence. And uh, Alexander Mercurius on the Duran, who you should definitely be listening to, he just kind of broke down one of the pieces of propaganda people have been spreading that he's an international arms dealer and was in, you know, he was indicted in Russian courts or whatever, convicted for some kind of arms dealing. When it turns out he basically under, under you know, not the correct channels, gifted somebody a pistol, and ultimately a lower court ended up dismissing the charges. So no, they did not appoint some international arms dealer like the person that. They proposed to trade Brittany Griner for, I can't remember his name, the infamous Russian arms dealer that they were going to trade for everyone's favorite black lesbian WNBA player. Uh, I can't remember his name, but, you know, it's not that. That kind of person is not in charge of the special military <laughs> operation for those people still reading Ukraine mm -hmm. flag Twitter. Yeah, but, but um, good point, Conrad. So I think people are, uh, there's a bunch of misinformation, you know, for to in order to portray a Russian as, as evil and as mischievous and villainous they of course have to bring out that that image of the victor boot as you mentioned and kind of they you know they they perform an analogy they're saying oh well victor boot this famous arms dealer who the cia and fbi captured and then traded to russia he's um he's equivalent to surovikin so you have this victor boot guy this uh you know alleged criminal in charge of the entire russian military this you know gangster and this kind of reinforces their view of putin as well don't you think Oh, of course. And I think it's just like, if, if, if this podcast can commute anything, communicate anything to a normie, it's that those who would come from the Russian nationalist perspective have just as many criticisms of Putin as you Putin haters. It's just the ones that we would have are based in reality, uh, not this kind of fantasy that's been built up about, a, about the Eastern boogeyman, you know, about to impose uh, both communism and czarist imperialism simultaneously, depending on the audience being spoken to at the time. 
who are trying to who the speaker is trying to rile up against Russia. So, yeah, I think uh, again, I talked a bit about my perspective on Putin uh, in on uh, Hervoye's show, and you know, we all know Putin plays the games with the globalist, you know, we've talked about it before, how he was a compromise candidate, how before, in many ways, 2007, he was kind of playing the game of the, uh, playing the game of a, of a, someone trying to integrate Russia with the West. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he still says the ISS is real and claims astronauts are there. He still, you know, kind mm -hmm. of talks about this nuclear stuff, which I think we're going to get into now. But, um, and again, he, uh, and as many would say, he, didn't do this in 2014, or he waited, you know, eight months to really start taking the special military operation seriously, and it took a Sotovikin to really make that happen. You know, that's those are kind of all sorts of criticisms you could levy at Vladimir Putin from the Russian nationalist perspective. Yeah. But you might have something to say about that. But regard if you tell us what you think, and then we'll kind of get into the nuclear thing because you know everyone's talking about how they're going to die in a nuclear war these days. Yeah, I think I think. Uh... Conrad was right in saying that in, internally the Russians do have many criticisms of their own government and special military operation, but what needs to be understood is predominantly the Russian citizens are in favor of um, supporting Russian troops. Of course, that does not mean they agree with the military leadership or all of their actions or even the political leadership, but supporting one's nation's troops is really important, at least to the Russian mindset and culture. You know, this goes back maybe to World War II, even prior to that, to the Napoleonic Wars, and maybe even before that. So Russian nationalism, Russian patriotism, it's inherently linked to the military. Russian is Russian culture is very um it's very infused with the uh military at least lifestyle. And you know, this goes back to Cossacks and um the horsemen of the steppes, the uh you know, defending the borderlands, you know, one of which was historically Ukraine. Frankly, that's where the name comes from. But um yeah, so definitely we're not uh you know, even even though we might mention Russia in a favorable light, we're not exactly blind to some of the criticism or, or even conspiracy theories behind some of these um, some of these events, especially in recent times. The fog of war is so thick, it's hard to make out exactly what's going on or who the good guy is, or maybe there really isn't a good guy. Um, I think it's uh, worth worth keeping out keeping an open mind, which is the kind of viewpoint which we try to promote. You know, keep an open mind to when we speak about religious matters such as such as orthodoxy and of course politics as well. It's good to have uh, some different perspectives. And uh, you were gonna say so about the nuclear question. I was going to mention the fact that yes, now we're seeing the, the headlines, of course, and Twitter is is hashtag World War. Everyone's speaking about it. Macron recently mentioned that uh, well, France will not be launching nuclear missiles because France, of course, as you may not know, is one of the original holders of nuclear weaponry, at least in Europe. Notice Germany, which is a powerful economic power in Europe and one of the heads of the European Union and a member of NATO does not have any nuclear weapons, but France does. And so does the UK. So we have the French President Macron mentioning openly that yes, if Russia does launch nuclear missiles at Ukraine, right, in a tactical fashion, he says France will not respond and NATO shouldn't respond either. He says we shouldn't escalate the conflict to a world war. But the fact that he's mentioning the possibility of Russia tactically launching nuclear missiles at Ukraine, just in the first place, just is already um, kind of bringing the subject to the forefront, don't you think? Oh, it is. And again, I think I mentioned this briefly in a previous episode. If there is a new, I personally believe that if there is a nuclear strike and it is attributed to Russia by the Western media, I would be very, very skeptical of it being from Russia. Mm -hmm. 
and I just don't see. And again, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as to say that there's there's an immediate plan right now for a nuclear strike from the West. But it's just reinforcing this idea, this mutually assured destruction nuclear idea, this horrible fear mongering idea that man can bring about the 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 natural the destruction of of humanity and usher in a a lifeless nuclear winter where everybody is sterile and no life can be formed. And I just kind of want to address that for a second. Um, that is not real. If you believe that's real. You should stop believing that's real, because it's not. The only person that can make something like that happen is God. And th- this idea that, uh, that, I mean, literally just, there's, there's Belarusians and Ukrainians that never left the Chernobyl exclusion zones, as they're called. People can go and completely be fine in the Fukushima disaster zone to this day. Uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, thriving metropolises. You know, the, the, I, this isn't to say that there aren't uh, enormous bombs that involve complicated, you know, scientific maneuvers that can wipe out cities and, and areas, but it's, it's, there, there is no, um, and many people are, there's this, I'm not the only person to hold this opinion. There are many uh, academics and scientists who, who would back me up on this, but I just think people need to recognize that that fear-mongering coming from the Western mainstream media is both to reinforce that narrative of man's power over creation as well as uh, to probably gaslight you to believe that Russia will actually use nuclear weapons, quote-unquote, tactical or not, again, whatever that means, against its brother nation, Ukraine, which I just don't think is even in the cards from the like from a practical perspective right now. No, and the no, Russian no. leadership. I think we've seen no precedent of Russian Russian wishes to even force mass destruction upon the Ukrainian, say, landmass, the infrastructure, the, um, the you know the towns and the. Notice how even when Mariupol is being besieged, and essentially you had all the civilians were evacuated, and in the end you just had the Mariupol uh, steel factory under which the Azov neo-Nazis, so essentially the epitome of villains, at least in the face of. Yeah, at least in the eyes of the Russians, you know, you had the most villainous people hiding in those um, <clears throat> in those uh, caves under and the tunnels under the steel factory. The Russian steel didn't even drop a they didn't drop a large bomb like a Fab five thousand or a Fab nine thousand or anything of that sort, like a huge ton bomb on that steel factory. They bombarded it with artillery, yes, but they didn't actually. Um, they wanted these uh, these Ukrainian extremists to surrender. They didn't want to destroy them and annihilate them, which is very interesting considering they could have, you know, he just as easily made a statement, evacuated the area and dropped a tactical nuke on the steel plant. I mean, that steel plant to this day is probably not going to be functional. I mean, it took decades for the Soviets to build. It's a huge industrial marvel. I don't think the, um, I don't think it's, it would be functional even if they dropped, dropped a nuclear weapon on it. So I think it's, uh, you have to consider the fact that Ru- the Russian special military operation, the way it's at least participating, whether or not it's wrong or right in the Ukraine, is it's attempting to at least free or, in the Russian eyes, you know, return these lands to some sort of order. At least we can say that in Kherson, Zaporozhye, Donbass, Lugansk, and, and, and the, the, the Donbass lands um, leading all the way up to Kharkov. They're letting the people, they're allowing the infrastructure to at least be sustained in some way and they're not trying to destroy the uh des- destroy the territory which you know frankly they're attempting to annex um which of course nuclear weaponry would uh would go against that tactic um so i completely agree i, I think the exaggeration that putin is in some sort of uh 
you know he's in a forced position to to drop nuclear weapons on on the Ukrainian forces is a little bit is a little bit far fetched. And if anything, it, it is um it's causing the same deal deal of anxiety that perhaps COVID has caused in the prior two years, but now has fallen away. Notice as we mentioned in our first episode a couple of weeks back. COVID was the main uh, driving force of discourse for anxiety building in the media. It was always discussed, well, you know, don't catch COVID or maybe even, frankly, even the vaccine discourse. It was all the vaccine slash COVID discourse essentially caused mass, not just mass panic, but um, mass anxiety in society. The fact that first COVID was forced on us, then, of course, the vaccines were forced by the government. Both of these things led to great fears and people were just completely enthralled by that idea. Now, that's that uh, particular attention is being shifted to this war and not just the on the ground, you know, people speaking about Shahid drones and the damage they can do, or even the siege of Mariupol, but they're discussing things that are um, somewhat exaggerated, like nuclear war and things which, uh, frankly, there's no, um, at least the, the Russians have no ground to even begin a nuclear conflict, right? Oh, no. And look, I'll be honest, uh, Russian boomer television does itself no favors by, like, putting up graphics of Moscow nuking mm. the UK. However, however funny as, like, a meme that might be, it's like, you know that's just going to get clipped and sent everywhere in the West, which it has. And, and, and but, but again, I just don't think, I genuinely think that if there were to be a tactical nuke dropped, there's much more likely a covert black op right now being planned by the CIA in conjunction with the SBU and whoever else might be involved, probably MI6, then there's actually like, right, you know, like all the headlines about Putin's nuclear submarine or Putin's nuclear armaments rushing towards the front. Like, I don't think any of that actually happened. So I think, I think again, it's much more likely if something like that were to happen, you know, some kind of something larger than a Moab, you know, like the one Trump mm-hmm. dropped in the Middle East. Yeah. Something larger than that, that would be much more likely to have been something from something from our side. And again, it would I would watch the situation, see what the Russian side said, see what the other side said, try to compare. But Russia does no interest in losing the support of India and China, and they have no interest in getting into some discourse about tactical nukes. Yeah, that's right. I think people are forgetting that the largest bomb dropped in the in the last three, four decades has been the Moab, which is, uh, I believe, a 9,000 ton um yeah, it was a, a nine thousand ton bomb uh, dropped on uh, dropped on, dropped in Syria in two thousand seventeen. I think it was Donald Trump sort of. Uh, it was dropped on an ISIS stronghold. Essentially, uh, it's these bombs. They're expl- They're not nuclear, but their explosive power is so strong that they can actually completely destroy any sort of any sort of ground defenses and uh, they you know annihilate any any sort of defense that can be put up at least by modern technology so these sort of weapons were not used in the ukraine yet but they were used in syria um so i just want to mention that the conflict hasn't escalated to that point yet in a way we're just as discussed last week we are only seeing the beginning of maybe something greater but at this point for some reason the nuclear discourse is at the is at the forefront i'm not too sure if that's uh, warranted at least but uh it is as you mentioned putin is not doing himself any favors either by mentioning the, I believe in his second or third presentation this year in April or March, he did mention the fact that Ukrainian, you know, the Russians, the Russian uh, FSB has discovered that the Ukrainian military was attempting to obtain nuclear military technology, which is frankly the same discourse which Trump used against Iran. And, you know, that may be true, uh, but it does bring, again, this nuclear subject, again, to 
kind of to the to those headlines you know uh you, the militarization of ukraine for nuclear technology is is a, about as serious as it can get and of course it would warrant an extremely serious response well, whether or not this special military operation can resolve that is another issue um but yeah that's that's the subject matter both russians and the west of course are bringing up the nuclear topic over and over again and it doesn't seem to be dying down anytime soon Unfortunately, not, and I mean, this we're, we're still ruled over by the generation that got forced to like duck and cover because they were afraid the Soviets were going to either nuke them or invade them, like in freaking Red Dawn. So, unfortunately, we're doomed to at least another fifteen years of in in like unexplainably cringe takes. But with the nuclear discourse, of course, as I mentioned, comes the threat of Russian isolation, which, according to those who you know believe. Every single country in the UN is equally uh, important. Russia is completely isolated and the world is united against them. You know, I believe it was 135 or 140 countries voted to uh, condemn or to, 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 to demand Russia reverse its annexation of Kherson, Zaporozhye, Donetsk, and Luhansk. And uh, then I believe only like seven or eight countries voted in support of it, which were, of course, Belarus, Syria, Nicaragua. Uh, a few others, and then of course the major players uh, besides Russia, the U.S., the U.K., and whatnot that abs abstained, being China, India, uh, countries like Ethiopia, Algeria, some of these big military geopolitical players in the regions that they exist in, Thailand. There were a few surprises though, but uh, before we get into those, I want to get your take. What is uh, what what what's going on? Is Russia isolated? Yeah, I think I think it's mostly as as we know, United Nations uh, votes of this sort and general assemblies are mostly just for show, and then mostly uh, they don't really affect anything besides um, public perception, which is frankly what has been on the Ukrainian side from the beginning. Russian um, Russian propaganda has been quite weak since the beginning of the uh, special military operation, and we notice Russia doesn't have the same capacity to push their agenda, at least through the media, as Ukraine does. Zelensky seems to have befriended almost every single parliament, at least in uh, uh, in Europe, appearing appearing at every election. At almost, I think, the Wall Street uh, stock market opening on Mondays, he appeared there in video form. He's appearing everywhere from markets to parliaments, and. Uh, Ukrainians definitely have the eye of the of the world on them. Now, I have I did see some tweets from popular Ukrainian spokespersons and celebrities mentioning that. Well, the fact that so many countries voted against the uh, the war in Ukraine and against Russia only means that you know Ukraine has the uh, support of the world. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say so because supporting someone via vote and not through um, you know military or economic means really is just a virtual signaling action. I don't think there's any real uh, grounds or not just grounds, but there's no real substance behind it, don't you think? Oh, I agree, and that of course explains the still cringe that I call them out. I will call them out for it. This the Serb, the perpetual anti-Russia Serb vote in the UN, where their delegation just can't seem to get it together, and that of course has to do with the fact that their leadership still maintains itself as a, a potential EU member. But again, we recently heard talk of uh, joint Hungary-Serbian pipeline to supply Russian gas to both of those countries. So again, both of those countries voted in this vote against Russia, but let's be honest, are Orban and Vucic known <laughs> as anti-Russian leaders? No. 
some of the bigger surprise to the biggest surprise to me was Myanmar, which that might have something to do with the fact that they're fighting an insurgency within their own borders and don't want to and, and are trying to support the current map as is, I guess you could say. But I don't quite know enough about uh, you know Indochinese or the South Pacific uh, politics. But I do know that Myanmar, the Myanmar military junta, is supported primarily by China and Russia with Russia being the first foreign delegation that they ever spoke to after they you know, formed and rose up against the democratic Zog government that tried to take over there a few like a year or two ago. Uh, I really actually hope that we can get Brian Berletic from the new Atlas to talk to us more about that. I think uh, he's really smart. I think people would like his content and he would have it be a good addition to our show. But yeah, no, that vote was, you know, it's just interesting that and again, people making all these maps for all the countries that are green, good, and all the countries that voted for Russia, bad. So it looks like, you know, all oh, five countries and then every other country. But again, like the reason the numbers are so high is because there's countries like Palau, you know, uh, Micronesia, these sorts of inventions of the American adventure in the Pacific. Yeah, but, and all these small countries, right? People need to understand they they really don't have don't have um, any interaction with either Ukraine or Russia. Their trades uh even their trade treaties are so limited there there's really almost no connection between them and Russia or Ukraine so they don't uh they don't win or lose by voting here the only thing that i guess is improved is their uh, the history books will mention the fact that they voted against the war and you know that's just a sort of historical stamp on their um on their passport that's that's all pretty much there is to this I think, and uh, Zelensky and others claiming that, well, ru the world is against Russia now, I think that's simply an exaggeration. No, I think it's important to realize that the UN is is, is a meme institution, and as you say, these, uh, these General Assembly votes are basically done for show. But uh, I think it's important to also realize that, you know, the countries that did vote for Russia, it shows how firmly they are truly committed to uh, supporting Putin and to supporting uh, the Russian military in particular, especially Syria and everything that it does. Oh, and, yeah. um, yeah, the, uh, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I think Syria has been like a prime example of a country which actually received benefit from the Russian military, like in the first hand, well, Russia essentially, well, you can say partially along with Trump's assistance, but I would argue maybe against that received received support from russia to battle against isis and we know isis was the probably the main bad guy in the uh, for the last six years the one who you know the evil islamic extremist organization would try to you know not not just reshape the middle east into some sort of terrorist caliphate but also destroy all the christian um uh, you know christian holy sites as well and who knows what their plans would have been for say uh palestine or israel or some of the um orthodox uh antiochian Damascus community. So it's a great thing that Russia has helped Syria and it seems to have paid off because Syria now is firmly in the Russian camp and Russia now for at least for the foreseeable future will always have a warm water port in the Mediterranean that is friendly to it. Exactly. And I think as well, when it comes to Russia's position on the world stage, you mentioned that the propaganda battle has always been lost basically by the Russians from the beginning and that's 100% true. However, I would say up until this point with the appointment of Surovikin, the only apparatus of the US, of the Russian kind of closed-rank Russian government right now operating on all fronts for this war effort um, was the Russian foreign ministry. I think they were the most impressive. I think Lavrov has been, has maintained the best frame, has maintained, 
has has shown just objective improvement, I guess, even in his objective to maintain Russia's foreign relations. And it's important, I talked to this again with Hervoyer the other night on the radio, I'll have that li- the interview when the replay is linked, I'll have that posted everywhere. Uh, our friend Baron of Taiga on Twitter, had he did the math, and it was just over 50% of, I guess, the world's economic power whether, when it comes to the world population as well as you know the world economy. Of course, were either abstained or supported the operation, and the even in the UN vote. So uh, it just it just for those of you who will point to this as a sign of the fundamental isolation of Russia, it's just it's you need more. You're going to need a little more than that. Yeah, of course. I think it's 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 worth bringing this back to um, again. It's not it's not the fact of who who supports the war, but what is actually happening on the ground. And as we've seen recently. Uh, the special military operation is still ongoing through Vic and has escalated matters past, you know, a certain point of stalemate. Russia has delivered tactical strikes on, you know, Ukrainian energy facilities, um, you know, taking out all the power involved for a couple of days, I think to this day, almost in some areas. And, and Zelensky's, um, Zelensky's SBU headquarters as well were hit and Zelensky himself was evacuated at least temporarily out of Kiev. So we have these, we have these huge things going on on the ground and uh regardless of the voting that's happening um far away in 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 new york or brussels or wherever else it's it's really not affecting too much of uh you know putin's realpolitik position actually in ukraine and at this point it's not even putin anymore that's the figurehead again as you've mentioned it's uh, surovik and this new this new character who's just appeared on the scene and now um it's going to be interesting to see exactly how um how people at least react to his actions you know will he carry on through with this uh, you know, initial entree of you know delivering revenge strikes against ukrainian tactical tactical targets or will he back off and act in a similar fashion to shoigu and gerasimov where they kind of stood back and maybe awaited orders for even from even a high position maybe from a medvedev or a putin to kind of push the agenda forward you know past the zones of referendum um I think it's uh, it's really up to it's really up to the Russian leadership as to where the war goes. I, I don't think the Ukrainians have it in them to um, escalate the matter past perhaps any terrorist action which they've recently you know taken upon themselves. So I think the ball is firmly in the Russian court. It's just a matter of you know exactly what the Russians will do next. And uh, not sure about you, Conrad, but I think it's a little bit unpredictable at this point. Um, I'm really kind of lost as to what the strategy will be and now that these four territories are firmly in russian control and now the next point of discourse will be kind of like waiting until winter and maybe seeing how the gas situation will play out in europe no 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 you don't understand you heard of being q pilled in america i'm z pilled in russia you remember all that all right. fake news about the uh, remember all the fake news about the coup going on in moscow you know everyone and apple bomb treating about their military coup it was real patriots got to putin they sat him down they put a, they put some guns on him we're like look man we're taking this to the next level and patriots have been in control ever since and uh, I'm 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 completely joking, of course, lest this be taken out of context. But there there are there there are of course the theory that perhaps Putin has been the victim of a bit of a, a pre- some a, some harder pressure behind the scenes from those in the military that are sick of playing Mr. Nice Guy. But uh, no, I think that's th- those theories are very interesting. But I think we have a few directions we could go here. If we want to talk about the Turkstream pipeline, which we're getting reports now about, you know, attempt to blow up. We also want to talk about our good friend Batska, what's going on in Belarus. We're hearing reports that they're entering 
I'll leave it up to you, Dimitri. Uh, where do you want to take this next? I think both are both. We could get to both naturally here. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning the fact that the FSB is so the Russian equivalent to the CIA F- F- slash FBI, and mostly CIA is how transparent they've been uh, in the last week. They've given us a fresh take on the Kerch Bridges explosion, essentially um, giving us open information as to who planned the explosion. As I mentioned prior, how the explosives were carried for all these countries, and they ended up on the bridge itself and who planned it all. And that's not really been um, contradicted by anyone, including Ukrainian media. Everyone's kind of just accepted the fact that, well, yes, the Ukrainian special forces caused the terrorist act. But the second terrorist act, which was in the making and wasn't fulfilled, was uh, there is one one of the major gas lines that isn't doesn't necessarily go to Europe, uh, but it go, well, I guess if you can count Turkey as Europe, it it goes through through Russia, um, past the Azov Sea and the Black under the Black Sea into Turkey. It's called the Turk Stream. So similar to the Nord Stream, it carries gas from Russia to Turkey and supplies most of Turkey's gas. Now, there were, the FSB and Peskov, the spokesperson for Vladimir Putin, reported uh, earlier, I, I believe it was three four days ago, that there was a, a a terrorist act which was prevented by the Russian FSB uh, federal agents, and this uh, this terrorist act was planned by several Ukrainian agents, and they pl- were planning to destroy the Turk Stream gas line on Russian soil. So what this means is that I guess Ukrainian special forces are still acting, at least if we are to believe the FSB is still acting on Russian soil and uh, trying to sabotage at least the what seems to be the energy market in the background. And in some ways, at least to me, this seems somewhat apocalyptic. Like we have the Nord Stream pipeline going down, Nord Stream two not really launching. We have the Turk Stream uh, line at threat, and we also have the various Ukrainian gas lines, you know, essentially on the constant threat. And, you know, earlier this year we had um, the um, nuclear power plant in Ukraine as well being bombarded by, unfortunately, uh, Ukrainian artillery and tanks. So we have, so this entire energy discourse has really um, been, I think, at the, uh, at the helm of, uh, of the entire, of the entire conflict. I'm not too sure where, um, who's going to contradict the fact that Turkstream was on the threat and, but... I think with uh, with Turkstream, we have to recognize that Turkey, you know, they're in they're in a pretty tough place when it comes to their their economy and their uh, the lira and all those sorts of things, as well as politically. You know, I've I, I talked about this in on TNT that I predict that Erdogan loses in 2023, and that a more pro-Western uh, group of Turkish uh, military-aligned leaders come into power, and. Uh, we, we, we've talked a little bit about where we think that might go mm-hmm. prophetically, but I think in general, Turkey is in a very precarious place, and I don't think anybody, with one or two exceptions perhaps, is playing this this neutrality game uh, harder than Erdogan, Absolutely. where he is very much, you know, he's, he's just really, really trying to maintain all of this, uh, really trying to maintain frame both as a NATO member and as a... I mean, someone who just shared, like, the most relevant power that is close to Russia, as physically close to Russia, he's trying to, you know, maintain just the obvious beneficial relationship that he has with them. So it's just, it's such a place to watch. We're always going to be watching it. We think it's where some of the most action is going to be in the next 10 years. So uh, we'll, we'll, we're always going to have our eyes on that. But uh, 
Yeah, yeah, no, go, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, Erdogan, perhaps at least in my eyes, has proven himself to be one of the most capable politicians in, in recent decades, uh, comparable maybe only to Putin in terms of actually being effective and pushing his certain uh, ideology and politics onto the world. He's managed to squeeze out the most juice out of any, out of the smallest of situations he's held the Syrian conflict under control, hasn't let that negatively affect Turkey at all, has held the Armenian-Azerbaijani control in his sort of scope without letting that kind of overflow into Turkey. Of course, he's held the Kurd question, which regardless of your stance on the Kurdish position, he's held that in uh, um, as well, in, you know, firmly in his, in his sort of vision. And at the same time, he's also attempted to push Turkey, you know, more into the European Union, or at least, you know, European Union won't accept Turkey, but at least he's held Turkey within uh, NATO's membership. And uh, kind of at the moment, it seems that I'm not sure what the frame is, at least for the Ukrainians, but they seem to be wanting to involve Turkey slightly more. And this Turkstream uh, sabotage attempt, I believe it was probably an attempt to bring Turkey a bit more into the war through, I'm not sure on which side, but there seems to be some sort of chaotic factor to all of this. Maybe it's, this is a bit esoteric, but it seems there are powers at play that wish to escalate the conflict, not, not just to maybe a nuclear one, but also to... Uh, one of economic, you know, of dire economic disaster. So somebody seems to be want to at least escalate the matter to a point of um, just you know, to cause this not a nuclear winter, but the winter that's coming to be an absolute, um, absolute catastrophe, not just for Europe, but for Turkey as well. Um, these are chaotic elements. I'm not going to mention them. Uh, yeah, they seem to be as as anti anti Russian, anti Western, and anti Turkish at the same time. You know, again, Turkey is uh, it's 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 on the edge of edge of the Occident. So of course, there's going to be some crazy stuff going on there. But uh, also, who is who is Turkish? Who is at least Erdogan's number one enemy now? It's actually Macron. You know, Macron and the French they've they, they've had a vendetta out for Turkish influence and for, uh, for for Erdogan in particular for a while now, which is so funny because in many ways. It's it's caused them to ally with uh, the Russians, even though r the Russians are their biggest enemy in Africa. Like it's 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 very interesting how how the former how France has has really just an incomprehensible foreign policy due to its attempt to maintain a somewhat still legitimate and active uh, uh, real empire around uh, around the world. But uh, I mean, the, part of that, of course, is Macron going and broker at least attempting to broker a peace deal with uh, Pashinyan and Aliyev. The leaders of Armenia and Azerbaijan, you know, which, of course, Erdogan was being supportive of the general peace effort, but I think Macron was, I think that was at Macron's main motivation, actually, was, of course, he will signal that it was about Russia, but I think for him and his personal reasons, it was actually more about Erdogan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Turkish-French relations go all the way, as mentioned last week, to the Crimean War, where Tur Turkey and France have always been never really enemies but always like uh, on a semi-alliance basis where they've always cooperated in some ways and even butted heads on some subjects but never have gone to you know open outright war maybe perhaps since the time of napoleon so it's really quite curious as to where exactly all of this is going and uh, of course i believe erdogan to be a much more capable politician than macron but macron still is still has his influence at least in nato and the eu um it'll be interesting to see where all of this goes but of course the great politician uh, of at least last week and t this week will probably be um, uh, Baitska, which is uh, the Belarusian president, at least uh, 
what you know they call him a dictator in the West, but you know he he is a fairly elected president at least in Belarus. Everyone voted for him predominantly for the last several election cycles. Uh, Lukashenko. Now, Lukashenko's position at the moment has been that of a uh, I suppose a neutral, lukewarm. Uh, we will sit back and allow Russia to do as it wishes with Ukraine until, of course, this week when suddenly. The Ukrainians began bombing the bridges connecting, Be uh, connecting, uh, going over some of the Belarusian slash Ukrainian borders, uh, you know, over the some of the rivers, and the bridges have been, uh, you know, the Ukrainians took it upon themselves to destroy these bridges, and some of this infrastructure wasn't in fact built by Belarusian taxpayer money. So Lukashenko's first reaction was to move his forces up to the Ukrainian border, and now he says the Ukrainian, the Belarusian army is on standby. Um, this thing is really. Uh, of course, this is probably the greatest escalation we've seen in the war since um, pr probably the um, the bombardment, at least early on in February. It's really taken taking us into a certain second season of events. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, even the little Wikipedia belligerence tab, they added Belarus as the mm -hmm. supported by, you know, little character there. And... Um, of course, people are saying it's ridiculous. Why would Belarus be in danger of being invaded by Ukraine? But if you combine the fact that they've already destroyed Belarusian infrastructure with the fact that, look, you can claim that just because Lukashenko says it doesn't mean it's true. I didn't need Lukashenko to tell me that there's mercenaries and intelligence agents being trained in Poland and Ukraine to assassinate him. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't, I didn't need him to say that. Him saying it makes sense, I would say it if I was in danger of that too. But this this idea that that he's paranoid or that he's just saying this as a justification for russians to launch from belarusian uh soil i i i think it's a bit it's 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 just a shows an ignorance of the situation especially considering the context of the 2020 coup where look lukashenko was trying his best to play russia and the west not against themselves but just try to be a play try to do the most economic benefit for his people as he could without of course completely alienating russia he had to completely abandon that project when they tried to coup him out in 2020, and he decided, all right, I'm all in with Vlad. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Russians literally had to send in, you know, they had to send in military police to help put down the color revolution. Yeah. And, the, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, that exact color revolution, I'm, let's let's not forget who was the leader of it. It was uh, the Belarusians were pushing this uh, anti-Orthodox project where you had, you know, this uh, party supported by, you know, their leader Svetlana Tikhanovska, and Svetlana was, uh, you know, she's not only was she was she a feminist, I guess, in the Belarusians' vision, but she was also a staunch liberal. So we have this liberal feminist woman leading the Belarusian opposition. Uh, she ended up migrating out of Belarus to Poland in order to lead this oppositionary colored revolution. This kind of very Western figurehead, at least for the Belarusians, essentially maybe like a female version of Zelensky in a way, very progressive, very liberal in her views. But but unlike Zelensky and the Maidan coup of 2014, the you know the powers that came to be in Ukraine, Tikhanovska didn't. Uh, her revolution didn't eventuate in Belarus. Uh, Belarus in 2020, Russia ended up sending its own uh, special police forces into Belarus, and they shut that whole thing down. As you mentioned, I think it's, uh, it's. Good. I think it's really should be mentioned that uh, the the failure of that coup, I think, has at least put Belarus on the map in terms of. Um, its its firm position in the Russian camp, as opposed to this uh, neutrality which it held for roughly, you could say, almost thirty years at this point until twenty twenty. 
And people need to recognize that, like, people are like, oh, well, it's easy for you to say that they support it when their dictator is one of the only dictators in the world that votes with Russia and the UN, and they just follow whatever. Look, if there's one group of people that are Russians that aren't within the current borders of the Russian Federation, it's Belarusians. And I don't think that many Belarusians would be offended at me saying that. The ones that would are already in Poland. And when it comes to someone like that woman you're talking about who again i'm not even going to try to pronounce her name svetlana i'll say the first name she um it's kind of like a navalny phenomenon to me i believe of course there are people in belarus who i'm sure have all sorts of legitimate gripes with lukashenko and i believe there are figures that they would like perhaps to lead them instead it's not this woman <laughs> just like the same thing happens in russia it's not navalny that if people wanted someone to come in and take over from putin it is not Alexei Navalny, who's just a shapeshifter. He was more popular when he was pretending to be to the right of Putin. And like people just need to recognize that there's a big difference between what people that don't like the current leadership in the former SSSR want and what the West wants. Yeah, of course, like, uh, Navalny is usually brought up as this, you know, main opposition to Putin, but people don't realize that Navalny was greatly exaggerated, exaggerated and brought to the um, brought attention to by Western media as opposed to internally in Russia. He essentially did not have much popularity until all the other oppositionary members essentially retired, like Khodorkovsky retired, or at least left overseas. Um, Berezovsky was uh, either assassinated or he passed away. There was all these oppositionary leaders that kind of retired out of Russian politics, and suddenly this um, mysterious Navalny figure arises with you know very strange origins and uh, the the funding which he's received and he blows up mainly through through YouTube of course and we know the YouTube algorithm it does prefer uh, say Western liberal uh, minded folks and the the YouTube algorithm really helped push Navalny up at least in the Russian uh, in the Russian consciousness and you know TikTok becoming popular as well so Navalny all these um, TikTok oppositionary leaders they they really don't have any grounding and I think the the facts are on on the side of uh, at least the mainstream Russian news, which claim that Navalny was uh, has no power in Russia. Well, well mo most of the elections, at least the election results, even the local le elections, which frankly no one could really uh, fake, or you know, you can say the larger elections are fake, but at least the smaller local ones, none of the Navalny um, aligned politicians in Russia have been able to win those local elections. They've been all uh, you know. They've all they've all failed. So really, the evidence is not on Navalny's side. Navalny seems to be a a YouTube politician, so to speak, someone who created videos and has said controversial things about Putin and about the uh, Russian United Russia Party. Um, and now, of course, he's uh, sitting in prison for fraud and commercial um, commercial issues. Uh, it it really it really is a kind of a a pawn that the West has used in Russia to to stir up a fuss. And now he's. And now he's kind of thrown to the side and notice he's not being mentioned at all. Nobody's bringing him up. I think the West has kind of discarded him as a as a used source of uh, controversy and scandal. Yeah, at the end of the day, he, they were kind of just using him after any kind of attempt at him being relevant politically failed. He just was this guy they needed to have to name so they could keep it up for Westerners, you know, to keep up this air of the, of the fake opposition. Because I think I mentioned this in episode one. What are the what's the fundamental reason why the Atlantic intelligence power block hates, uh, you know, these powers: Russia, North Korea, Iran. Uh, maybe not North Korea might not exactly fall into this, but definitely Iran, Russia. Uh, some of these other places, it's because at the end of the day, they can't just with the snap of their fingers assassinate 
uh, the leader of this country. Like, I don't think the CIA could right now, if they wanted to, just kill Putin. You know, they couldn't even get within range to hard attack gun him unnecessarily. And that's, that's a big problem, because that, that, that's how, at the end of the day, true full-spectrum dominance should mean that you can do that for everybody, right? At the, like, if the, the true deep state can't, you know, necessarily do that, then it's, then it's a problem. Especially, of course, when those people happen to also be people that align against your radical secularism and represent uh, what effectively amount to religious regimes. Mm, that's but, right. Um, putting that obvious kind of restatement aside, I want to hear your thoughts on, on, on what we could possibly expect to see from the Belarusian border. Uh, I, we know the Union state is kind of one of the most, I think it's just a very interesting piece of political technology where, you know, it's, it's, everything short of being the same country while still fully maintaining, I guess, you know, like two sovereign governments in, in some sense. But what, what, what could we expect to see from, uh, from that with the involvement of the Belarusian forces, as well as what we could see from Russian forces being deployed from Belarus, whether it, cause we know for better or for worse that some of these, the Russian leadership and Putin himself were kind of obsessed with the legal categories that these fall under. Yeah, that's right. I think the beginning of a, the opening of the second Belarusian front would only be possible if uh, there would be a certain provocative action, and it would have to be, be go beyond the simple destruction of these bridges. Perhaps a Ukrainian special military, uh, some sort of special military, op a Ukrainian version of a special military operation into Belarus, at least provoking the Belarusians to join the war. I, as as you uh, as you mentioned, Putin, Lukashenko, they are obsessed with legalities in order to uh, frame their particular. Um, foreign political actions in a certain way in order to give them some sort of legitimacy um certain uh at least precedents need to need to be followed and so i would imagine uh belarus and lukashenko in particular Batsko would need some sort of um some sort of uh event to take place perhaps um maybe another terrorist act, act perhaps something on the border um maybe maybe the belarusian i mean there there is a gas line going for belarus after all so if that was targeted you know even through um and if it was proven to be ukrainian action that would of course force belarusian troops into the for, into the war um where i don't believe lukashenko would actually uh initiate at least to this to this day notice how at the beginning of the conflict lukashenko still didn't support russia directly with any you know, military, at least no, no tanks, no, no actual reinforcements. He did support Russia in providing them, uh, hospitals for some of the injured troops, at least those who, um, assaulted Gostomel, the airport next to Kiev and through the north. Russia, uh, Belarus did provide transit for Russian forces to enter into northern Ukraine. But besides that, they've stayed out of the conflict. And I think if they, if they did support Russia, at least in those early few months in March, February, and maybe April, Russia put it, could have perhaps put the entire special military operation to some sort of conclusive end. But to this point, to this day, Belarus has really stayed out of it. And I'm still wondering, I know, I know, based on what we've seen that Lukashenko is in Putin's camp, but I'm wondering whether or not he's still waiting for some sort of provocation from Ukraine to actually act upon, you know, his preparation to this day. No, I agree. There has to be a, a bit more of a casus belli. And uh, this might be a bit, we, we don't have to get too deep into this. I want to get into some of your, some of what you've been researching on the religious front on the ground in Ukraine, and then one or two other things. But with uh, Lukashenko and Belarus, do you think, it, we, do you think we have to wait? Is think it's going to be when Lukashenko dies or retires 
when we see like integration of Belarus into the Federation, or do you think that might come sooner? Oh, I think, I think the only possibility would definitely arise after Lukashenko would pass. Lukashenko is essentially a, a not just the figurehead, as in um, an imaginary leader. He is he is the actual, uh, he is the unifying force of Belarus. He he's been there since 1991, and even before that, he was the leader of the uh, uh, Belarusian Soviet Republic. So he he's already cemented himself as the. Uh, as the absolute dominant force in in that Belarusian region, there isn't any uh, other, at least significant, um, point of leadership. And I wouldn't even say the Russian Orthodox Bishop of Belarus, who has only come to the forefront quite recently, the Exarch of Belarus. He's um, he plays quite a minor part. He really doesn't get too political. And Lukashenko himself is um, is not really a religious man, so he hasn't really even um, <clears throat> at least based his legitimacy on religion. I, I do think that Lukashenko's hesitance to join Russia prior to 2022 or or at any point does indicate that I think he wants Belarus to remain at least uh, legally independent, perhaps until his passing, similar to how Franco wanted to keep Spain a republic uh, until his passing. And then, of course, uh, Spain became a constitutional monarchy. It's probably in, it's going to probably result in something of that sort occurring. Uh, I do think it's worth noting that um, Belarus does receive in incredibly large subsidies from the Russian Federation to the point where almost the entire Belarusian government in one way or another receives, at least almost every agency receives some sort of Russian subsidization through the Russian budget. Russian donations to Belarus are in incredibly high. So to call Belarus a satellite state of Russia would not necessarily be wrong. It is partially, um, the entire country is partially subsidized by uh, the R Russian um, uh, taxpayer dollars and uh, energy surplus, which it receives through selling gas and gas and other um, uh, energy to China and uh, and Germany. So, I yeah, I I definitely think uh, Belarus would remain independent until until further notice, until Lukashenko passes. Unfortunately, no. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's important though with what you said about how recently the bishop of Belarus, you know, the exarch has Bishop Benjamin has become more vocal. I think especially with the COVID stuff, that was kind of the first time I started seeing him kind of be correlated with Belarusian politics. He, I think, came out pretty strongly against some of the measures in the vaccines, which, you know, obviously that would, of course, be him channeling what Lukashenko was saying himself. And Lukashenko has pledged, as has, has called himself a protector of uh, the Belarusian Orthodox Church, despite the fact that he foolishly calls himself an Orthodox atheist, whatever that means. But, um, <laughs> You know, perhaps he perhaps uh, he can get baptized into the church, and then the next day we'll sign the full union into the mm -hmm. into the federation. But uh, yeah, on that note, with when it comes to the church and these bishops, what uh, there's been a bit more drama, unfortunately. Some of us, you know, I still think there is a light at the end of the tunnel for this, but we we were hoping to very quickly see the end of some of this really horrible Roman emperor level persecution of the church in in Ukraine. You know, because at the beginning of the conflict and even before, for those people that followed this since 2014, you've seen the videos of priests being dragged from behind the iconostasis during liturgy. You've seen mm -hmm. the videos of priests being spat on. You've seen the videos of schismatic bishops, you know, engaging in political violence. And uh, unfortunately, some of that's still going on. So uh, yeah. what's going on, Dimitri? Yeah, so essentially the latest, uh, latest tragedy, at least in church news in the Ukraine, was the... Um the arrest of Metropolitan Jonathan uh, 
who is a Ukrainian bishop of Tulchinsk, is how I would pronounce it, uh, Tulchinsk and the surrounding regions. So he's quite a senior bishop in the Ukrainian church. Now we're talking about the uh, canonical Ukrainian church, which belongs to the um, belongs to Metropolitan Onufri of Kiev, not the schismatic ones. So this Bishop Jonathan is, of course, an ethnic Ukrainian, but all of his sermons, at least in the last few years, since the beginning of the Maidan and the uh, Donbass war, have been pro-Russia-Ukraine. He's attempted through his sermons to unite the two peoples at least in, in firstly in, in a spiritual sense because both peoples are predominantly orthodox and secondly in a cultural sense he's been attempting to um, at least uh, form some sort of union of brotherhood through his sermons and frankly I'm not sure why his apartment was searched or why he was charged but uh, the Ukrainians have you know what the uh, what the exact reasons were I believed he was charged with attempting to discriminate against Ukrainian parishioners in his metropolitanate and also um, he allegedly claims after the after he was searched and arrested for a short time, uh, the poor Metropolitan Jonathan claims that uh, the Ukrainian special forces are going to start um, taking some of his, some of the churches from his diocese away based on uh, you know they're going to be performing search warrants searching for some sort of evidence uh, concerning the discrimination against Ukrainians and this is pretty pretty funny because Tulchensk is a very it's not very related to Russia in terms of uh, the residents are very Ukrainian in a way. So to have this metropolitan actually speak in favor of Russia and to have the Ukrainian SBU, the you know, the KGB of the of Ukraine, the Zelensky's KGB, essentially searching Orthodox bishops, searching churches, assaulting priests, is uh, really bringing persecution to a next atheistic level. Um, Maybe that we haven't seen since the communist times, and you can say yes, yeah, since the since the Roman emperors, since the uh, pagan times of Diocletian, it really it really has brought matters to a kind of an ap apocalyptic uh, antichrist stage, to where now we have actual bishops who are being assaulted. Um, I I'm not too sure where where this will end, but definitely uh, it may be a reaction. Maybe this is a signal that Zelensky is sending to the metropolitans in Russia as well, to the church leadership that, look, if you're going to support at least Russian troops and pray for them, we're going to start persecuting your bishops, at least here, where you can't help them physically. You can't, you know, Metropolitan Jonathan isn't, he's a brave man. He's not going to leave his diocese. He's going to remain there. And um, he's, yeah, it's, things are getting quite rough, I'd say, Conrad. No, I would agree. And I think in general, the persecution is going to keep happening for people around the world. And in the West, we just have to watch out for it as well, because when it comes here, it's going to be very, very nasty. And I believe uh, we, we can get even a picture of that in a sad, sad story. I won't spend too much mm -hmm. time on this, but I think many of us saw the very tragic thing happening in the Orthodox nation of Greece, where a holy priest, Father Athanasios, I believe was his name, was been sentenced to eight months. I think it was a suspended wow. sentence, but still sentenced to eight months for serving the liturgy um, during the pandemic. And I, I, again, I, and anyone can, I can, I can have also spend all day justifying why this could happen in an Orthodox country, whether it's, you know, the complete debt slave status of Greece or, you know, the Freemasonic influence or the fact that, you know, their politicians seem nominally Orthodox at best. It's it's just a real tragedy, and thankfully there are many many patriotic and uh, brave brave metropolitans, bishops, priests in Greece that have stood strongly against this. You know, metropolitan uh, 
you know, of course, uh, all the, almost all the Cypriot bishops besides the patriarch himself have stood mm-hmm. against this. Of course, there's, uh, who is it? I believe Metropolitan Nectarios, uh, Bishop uh, of Avegina, Metropolitan uh, of Corfu, you know, all of many of these very well-known historic metropolitans have stood strongly against this stuff, but there's still no excuse for it. And people need to recognize that persecution in this day and age, you know, it's going to take a few more years before it's able to be overt, like, gun to your head, deny Christ kind of situation. It's going to be this subtle, like we saw it happen, especially in places like Canada and Australia when it came to the uh, came to the COVID stuff. You know, I've heard stories of people mm-hmm. in Canada sneaking across empty fields with the curtains drawn in their churches to do like a whisper liturgy because the police drive by every five minutes to find them $10,000. Like this is, this is persecution. Like the media of course won't say that, but it, it is. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, and of course, we just need to be prepared for that. And the people in Ukraine, hopefully, I think what we're seeing now can be resolved. However, I think for that to be resolved would require Russia's Russia to perhaps achieve at the ma- the, nas- the maximalist aims of its nationalist faction regarding uh, reterritorialization, which I do want to get into when it comes to the map. If you have any thoughts on on the current map situation. Yeah, I think uh, I think the fact that Russia is pushing further westwards and the integration of these four regions and the recent referendum has essentially established Russian, at least the the vision that Russia wants to legally annex these territories, or at least I wouldn't even use annex, but sort of uh, rejoin them into the Russian Federation as members of said federation. Notice Russia isn't legally an empire; it is a uh, federation and conglomeration of states and oblasts and. Uh, regions um that's worth noting on the on the legal front on the religious front i think that uh the persecution of bishops is essentially not going to stop essentially until the denazification and the demilitarization of of the ukraine at least on the ukrainian end we notice many countries like greece very western aligned countries and you know you could say even uh other places around the world i'm not going to name it name them but um, you know, even some places in Asia which aren't necessarily Western, they they use the persecution, they pursue the persecution of orthodoxy under the guise of, say, political action. For example, you know, COVID restrictions would be one of them. You know, the Orthodox Church doesn't wish to enforce COVID restrictions. Okay, we will close the local church down, we'll find the priest, or we'll even jail a particular bishop or, you know, um, send them to court, maybe... Uh, you know, there will be, these actions have been taken in the last two years and even beyond that, right? This goes back to Soviet times or even the times of the Ottoman Empire when they would take over Greece and force priests to follow certain certain uh, extrajudicial rules on how they would perform liturgies and really restrict them in how they would, how, how they would act and practice the orthodoxy. In the Ukraine today, it's a similar, it's a similar situation. If the regions which Russia controls, these four new uh, regions that have joined Russia legally through referendum, all the bishops and priests can essentially give whatever sermons they please. They can, in their sermons, they could mention the fact that, yeah, Putin began the special military operation. Maybe Putin's really, you know, notice the bishops in Russia have been, have had a very a variety of opinions. Some bishops have been essentially uh, not pacifists, but they've been praying against the war and they've been openly calling for it to end. They've been calling a special military operation to end and they still haven't been prosecuted by the Russian government. Russia seems to be providing more freedom of speech to its Christians than the Ukraine than the Ukraine has. Meanwhile, in the regions still controlled by Ukraine, bishops, as soon as they speak out in favor of praying for some sort of you know, uniting peace between Russians and Ukrainians, which is 
Frankly, this is what the saints have spoken about in prophecy over a hundred years ago. This is not a controversial neo um, neo Putinist right wing take. It's a it's an Orthodox Christian default position almost you can say. So you know, Metropolitan uh, Metropolitan Jonathan mentioning this in his sermons isn't really going uh, against the grain. He's kind of just sticking to what Orthodox folks have always believed. So I think it's just a matter of is Russia willing to put um, its consideration of Orthodox unity at the forefront? At the moment, notice Orthodoxy wasn't on the agenda for the special military operation at all. It's been kind of uh, an unspoken unspoken thing in the background, the fact that Ukraine has had a schism and the Ukrainian church is in a really dire situation. What's been at the forefront of the SMO has been uh, the denazification, demilitarization, of course, preventing Ukraine from obtaining nuclear weapons and the bombardment of Donbass. So these four things have been the primary movers, at least for Putin's uh, you know, political agenda. Orthodoxy hasn't officially been listed as one of these. Maybe this recent persecution, or at least if, you know, Lord forbid, it continues on down this track and Zelensky continues to persecute bishops and priests, perhaps the defense of the Orthodox Church, maybe, and this is maybe where Lukashenko comes in again, you know, maybe the protection of the Orthodox Church in Ukraine will become an item which is worthy of consideration by, say, the Russian and Belarusian leadership, at least at the highest levels. No, I mean, it would be interesting to see if that actually is something where people would openly speak about it in a political context regarding the war. I think it's very, I mean, again, if I were just to give my perspective, I think from the perspective entirely of peace and the and, and just the, the protection of Christians and the freedom of true Orthodox worship, I think the best case scenario for this conflict would be for ultimately for Russia to take control of everything except perhaps the nine or ten oblasts in the far west. And at that point, those would be both schismatic. These might as well have them all become uniates, mm -hmm. which would very much be a, a, a quick and easy way to resolve the issue of the ecumenical patriarchs incursion into Ukraine ecclesially, as well as... I think just the the problem again, and I I I would be shocked if Russia did that. I very much anticipate the attempt of a rump state, but again, mm -hmm. just so I'm on the record, I still do predict that that Russia will push to Odessa and connect with Transnistria, mm -hmm. and I guess I'm the most cloudy on whether or not they will actually push towards Kiev militarily. I I don't know personally. I Dmitry might have an opinion. I also think that Poland is eventually going to get in on some of this. I just don't see how that doesn't eventually happen. It'd be interesting if Hungary could get Transcarpathia as well. Yeah, I think it's important to be making predictions, at least at this time, because look, we've reached the point where Ukraine makes an action, causes a terrorist act, such as you know the killing of Dasha Dugina or the bombardment of the Kerch, Kerch Bridge, it's, you know, the terrorist act behind that, and Russia responds almost instantly with uh, with the um, destruction of certain tactical targets in the Ukraine. So this so the way it's being the way the conflict is playing out is very very much like a chess 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 game it's one side makes a move then the other side responds um it's really i think it's really hard to predict exactly what the end goal is it seems to be that russia is almost playing uh, it's almost surfing this wave of opportunity so essentially the people of zaporozhye really wanted to join russia and they were mostly russia supporters to begin with including the people of Kherson, and russia simply provided them the opportunity to vote at a referendum to legally join Kherson, uh to, to legally join the join Kherson to russia um and these are just examples of uh essentially people exploring their 
I guess you can almost say the democratic will uh, and kind of making a decision for themselves. Russia really hasn't forcefully annexed any, tori any territory thus far. So as you you're right, it, it's really difficult to imagine something like a conquest of Kiev, which is perhaps 60% uh, anti-Russian, at least at this point, maybe even more so, because Russia supporters have been persecuted in Kiev since at least 2014, I would say even prior to that. So, and the Western regions in Ukraine are, uh, you know, vehemently anti-Russian. I can't see Russia, you know, um, at least not at least not winning any local elections in that area or any referendums whatsoever. I, so it really does baffle me to, you know, kind of see some of these visions for a united Ukraine and Russia, as lovely as that would be. Um, I just don't see it happening in the current climate. There's just too much animosity between the the culture of, you know, the mainstream culture of the Ukraine, which is, you know, you could say it's created in a lab by Western political scientists in the 90s and 80s, but that culture is still do the dominant force in Western and Central Ukraine. It's not, you know, it's not going away ex exactly. And a referendum isn't going to make it go away. And these territories will not willfully join Russia. So I'm just wondering what uh, what the long what long game is here, especially after these recent bombardments. Russia has shown, Russia has shown that it has the willpower to actually uh, execute military decisions, which uh, perhaps would cause severe outrage in the world. For example, the bombardment of all these elect electrical energy stations as far as Lvov in the West. It's just incredible. Um, I'm really not sure what exactly the long-term agenda is. And I don't think anyone is sure, besides maybe the highest level of uh, decision makers in the in the Russian political slash military sphere. Yeah, and I've I also have no no insight that perhaps anyone else may not have, but I could very much see Russia having the goal of connecting with Transnistria and then having a Kiev dominated rump state, and then whether or not those far western things stay with said neutral rump state or join a NATO aligned country is. As I guess up to those the governments that control those countries, but I very much could see why Russia would not want to have a direct border with Poland like that. Like that would be mm -hmm. they already do with Kaliningrad, which I think gives them enough headaches as it is. But I, I think we have to watch. I, I think I agree with um, almost everyone. I think in, in in our sphere of analysis agrees with this that Poland is probably the most interested in just dragging everybody with a powerful military into this conflict <laughs> for some reason or another. And um, I think we have to watch their recklessness when it comes to perhaps something on the Belarusian border, something within Ukraine on the Belarusian border, but from Polish sources, or something um, on a pipeline, perhaps within the Belarusian uh, within the Belarusian uh, border as well. So I, I, I'm, I'm watching you, Polacks. I'm, I'm watching you. But uh, we're getting pretty close uh, to the end here, but we have one or two more things we might want to touch on. Uh, of course, I want to get your thoughts on what I just said, but uh, feel free to take us wherever you kind of want to land this plane. Yeah, no, I think it's worth mentioning. Kaliningrad, essentially, for those who don't know, is a small Russian territory between Poland uh, Poland and and the Baltic Sea, which Russia conquered up. Well, I wouldn't say conquered, but it uh, the Soviet, it used to be a Prussian city named Konigsberg, which was the capital of ancient Prussia, a German, a German region, a German kingdom. Um, which used to actually was probably even you could say the capital of all of Germany, at least the seat of German power. Uh, the city was, of course, captured by the Soviets during World War II and renamed into Kaliningrad. So this territory, Kaliningrad on the map, it's not physically connected to Russia. And in fact, in order to um, 
and it, it's there are huge controversies on the border with with the with the Polish. Of course, some Polish population ended up in Kaliningrad, and so they're living in what is now Russia. Or there were issues of migration and real estate, at least going back to the nineties. For the last thirty years, there have been uh, constant headaches and little controversies coming up here and there. The other thing is Kaliningrad has its own Orthodox bishop who. Um, about nine or ten days ago, officially issued a ten-day, ten-day fast in his diocese, which means well, this is somewhat extraordinary because normally uh, in the month of October, Orthodox people don't fast besides the usual Wednesday and Friday fasts, and the Bishop of Kaliningrad ordered that everyone under his diocese, everyone from the Kaliningrad Oblast and the Kaliningrad city, would have to fast for ten days and ten nights and pray for peace, which is. I would say probably more effective than any UN resolution or any UN vote that could occur because, you know, fasting and praying has an immediate spiritual effect. And, you know, you beseech, you ask God, you ask mercifully that, you know, there are, you know, you wish to at least have the whole in, entire conflict resolved through, uh, you know, immediate means rather than, you know, letting things play out. So we have this special uh, fasting period organized by the Bishop of Kaliningrad, very uh, eventful. It harkens back to, I believe uh, these special fasts were organized um, 400 years ago during the uh, Russian Civil War in 1612 when uh, Bishop uh, Herm uh, Saint Hermogenes of Moscow, who was the Patriarch of Moscow, organized a three-day and three-night fast. So no one would eat or drink, actually. It was even more extreme than this 10-day fast. He organized a three-day fast in order to end the Russian Civil War in 1612. So this is, a, in a similar fashion, the Bishop of Kaliningrad took it upon himself to kind of uh, have this fast happen. It's really kind of um, in a positive fashion. I think it it shows us that, yes, uh, bishops are not just, uh, you know, as the Western media portrays them as, you know, pushing for war and pushing for the some sort of conflict. But no, they're actually praying for peace, essentially. That's the role of the church is to allow God's will to play out and for God to arrange peace as he, as he sees fit. I think that's an important message. Well, and it just makes me think of Mark uh, 929, you know, where it says that there's a certain type of demon that can only be driven out by prayer and fasting. And we know that there are holy bishops that I'm sure have performed exorcisms and, you know, dunked the land in holy water by plane even to, you know, perhaps exercise what could be viewed as a sort of spirit of antichrist rising in Ukraine. But perhaps that's the kind of thing that can only be driven out by, by prayer and fasting, you know, as, mm -hmm. as Christ himself said. And uh, I think that's a... That's an important angle to always look at it as. And um, there are very holy bishops and holy priests and holy monks in, especially some of these regions in the Donbass, you know, some of these monasteries, and then even monasteries in places like Melitopol and Kherson, you know, some of these places are both very important to the Russian spiritual life, as well as just currently in our time possess some of the most holy people, especially people that, you know, even resisted a lot of the, the tyranny and spirit of Antichrist we saw with a lot of the, the medical stuff. Uh, Dimitri, is there anything you want to say about uh, stuff coming from you on the Substack? And then if not, you know, we'll finish it out and then I'll I'll, I'll land the plane. Yeah, so I think in, in light of the recent appointment of uh, Suvorikin to the leadership of the Ukrainian front, on at least not from the Russian perspective, I think it's pertinent to speak about the 1991 October Revolution, which I'll be writing a short article on. So the 1991 October coup or revolution that took place in Russia really kind of instrumentally described as to why Russia today is as nationalistic, as patriotic, as as opposed to, um, you know, the liberal Russia that maybe some Western thinkers wanted it to be, at least in the 90s. And this uh, 
particular revolution of 1991 isn't spoken about much, but Suvarikin played a particularly important role in it. And in fact, uh, uh, we this will be discussed in the article. Of course, the other article that's coming out will be concerning the African diocese and all the um, geopolitical as well as uh, um, ecclesiastical difficulties that come out of there. And you know, essentially, we have Russian missionary effort in Africa being funded by uh, by the Russian people, uh, which is uh, really, I think, instrumental in pushing orthodoxy at least to the forefront in a land which uh, hasn't known Christianity for too long, or at least not the Orthodox Church, but has known, say, others, Catholicism and Protestantism. So these two articles will be coming out uh, later this week, so stay tuned on the Substack. I know we'll be looking forward to those, and hopefully within this week, we can also put those out on YouTube. And thank you again for 500 subscribers on YouTube. Again, we're up on Telegram, World War Now Telly. Uh, be sure to follow us, worldwarnow.substack.com. That's kind of where the, that's our central HQ, where the, the central control, where it all stems from. But then be sure to follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. Follow me on Twitter at Nomrad. Follow Dimitri on Twitter at O-C-A-N-O-N-I-S-T, O-Canonist, the Orthodox Canonist himself. He has some really great content recently, some 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 bangers, some some spicy yeah. ones, but some bangers nonetheless. And make sure to follow so, uh, World War Now uh, underscore on Twitter. We post the greatest news, at least on geopol on the geopolitical ends, alongside our friends, uh, Armchair Warlord, um, Baron of the Tiger, of course, uh, 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 Tyler Lviv, uh, Big Surge, and other great, great persons. Um, I, there'll be some great recommendations from us in terms of uh, colleagues who we'll be working with. Oh yeah, as I said, we're living in a content renaissance. So, uh, like I said, uh, take care. Be sure to like, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to, whether it's Substack or YouTube. Share with anybody, your friends, family, people that hate Russia, people that love Russia, people that do all sorts of things. Share it. All of we want everyone to listen. We want everyone to hear this information. Um, if if you want anything else to do, visit an Orthodox church in your area. I think that goes without saying. I'll probably remind people every episode. But uh, with all that being said. Uh, take care and uh, God bless. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.